Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Maybe you thought uh, it was a misprint. It's an awkward phrase. How is your doing? We're more accustomed to asking, How are you doing? And uh, sometimes we mean it. <clears throat> Not always, but sometimes. Because you know, it has become sort of just a passing phrase. How are you doing? You know, <laughs> whoa, I didn't need that much information. But sometimes we mean it, and we, you know, we really are asking the question. Basically, what we're asking is, how are you feeling? Because for most of us, how we are doing has to do with how we are feeling, what's happening to our emotions. So if you ask me how I'm doing, what I'm going to feed back to you is how I am emotionally dealing with whatever's going on in my life. And I'll be honest, you know, then, then how I am doing has a great deal to do with what's happening to me at the moment. So if good things are happening to me, I tend to be doing better than if bad things are happening to me. Am I the only one? So if you're asking that question on a good day, uh, I feel, uh, you know, happy, excited, good things have happened. I feel close to God. I feel like God loves me a lot. Everything's going really, really well. If you ask me on a bad day, then I'm not so sure that I'm coping well. And if I'm honest, I would... I would wonder if God is pleased and why he's not blessing me more or helping me more. So I'd get this sort of all tangled up together. And then, and then that just also dictates that how I am doing has to do with, you know, less about me and really about what's happening. I, I really have very little control over how I'm doing. I mean, you know, I can't control my circumstances. Therefore, I can't control my feelings. Therefore, I can't control how I'm doing. So how I'm doing is just a result of the sum total of what's going on around me. So when we change the question just a little, when we throw it verbally out of its awkward groove and we say, how is your doing? Well, that's a different question, isn't it? And it calls for a different set of brain processes to engage. And just so you know, we didn't make up this phrase. We stole it, and we stole it from early Methodism. John Wesley coined the phrase. He he said that when you became, so, so in early Methodism, you know, so let's do a church history lesson. So there was the Anglican church. We, we will start there. I mean, we could go earlier. Okay, there was a Catholic church. <laughs> and then there was a little thing called the Reformation in 1517. Maybe you remember, you've heard something about it, led by Martin Luther. And, and they were the protesters, so we, we had the birth of Protestantism and you know, the 16th century. So then the Protestants spent 100 years figuring things out. The Baptists, the Anabaptists, the Presbyterians, John Knox, you know, those great reformers of the 16th century. And then meanwhile, the politics in England are such that they're still sort of Catholic, but they're not, and they're trying to be. And then Henry VIII wanted to divorce his wife, and the Pope said no. So he just said, I'm going to start my own church. So he did. So Catholicism, late then in the 16th century, had a parallel called Anglicanism. And from that, we had the birth of the separatists who wanted to keep the Anglican church completely separate from the Catholic church. And we had the birth of the Puritans who wanted to purify the Anglican church. You understand this is our history, right? And because the Puritans wanted to purify 
the Anglican Church of all Catholicism. Uh, they practiced a purity of doctrine. They weren't actually stuffy puritanical people, uh, only theologically so. And then as the influences uh, of uh, Catholicism sort of began to impact the separatists, they decided to leave England and they became pilgrims. And they went to Holland and they found their families culturally being influenced in a way that they didn't like. So they applied for and were granted uh, a charter for a colony and they became the pilgrims of the Mayflower and now you are no more than you asked. <laughs> but out of Anglicanism then a century later came a man named John Wesley. John Wesley was an Anglican priest and he believed in something called the Holy Club as he was a fellow at Oxford University and teaching there in Christ College he challenged his students to be daily in the word uh, to do acts of uh, grace and kindness to those around them and to be prayerful, to be engaged in spiritual practice. And out of it, because he practiced something so methodical, he was derisively called a Methodist. And when he was later excommunicated from the Anglican Church, the movement of Methodism was born. There was no church membership in Methodism. You didn't join the Methodist Church. There was no such thing at the time. Instead, what Wesley recognized is that when you ask someone the question, how are you doing, you are asking them what is their emotional response to what's happening to them. But if you ask them a different question, how is your doing, then you are saying to them, what you are doing has something to do with how you are feeling. And so you didn't join the Methodist Church, you joined a class meeting. And the class meetings were built around this question. This is what the content of a class meeting was in early Methodism. You met midweek and someone looked at you and said, I'd like to know how is your doing? Not how are you doing, but how is your doing? What are you doing in the development of your spiritual journey and your life? In what way are you taking responsibility? In what way are you actively engaged? How is your doing? John Whitfield would later remark, I preached to millions of people and saw literally hundreds of thousands of conversions, but I did not see change the way John Wesley saw change because John taught people to practice life differently. I simply taught them conversion. And I would say here we are 300 years later, and we practice more of George Whitfield's theology than John Wesley's. In other words, we are much more akin to God fix me God, take care of whatever it is. And by the way, I love that theology, don't you? I mean, I wish God would just fix everything. I, Amen. What I pray for is a couple of things. You know, I, I want to be doing well. And so I just pray, okay, a couple of things, God. Fix my circumstances, and I'll do better. Can I get an amen? Amen. I mean, a lot of my prayer life is occupied with God fixing my circumstances. And if not, then this is my second layer and more noble prayer. Then give me the emotional strength <laughs> to deal with whatever it is. Yes. So when John Wesley comes along, and by the way, I, you know, I, I am a part of a symposium, and you guys are getting the fallout of it, but there are a lot of smart people sit in a room, and I'm there too, and we, <laughs> I listen to people talking, and I've told you this before, that's a place where it's like doctor, 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 Dave, doctor, doctor, doctor. 
one of these things is not like the other. <laughs> but last summer, when the symposium met, uh, Randy Maddox came, and Randy Maddox is a professor uh, at Duke Divinity School, and he's probably the leading authority uh, in the world on John Wesley and the movement of Methodism. Uh, you're talking about a human being that has digested and written, uh, read, digested, written about every single thing John Wesley ever said, wrote, did, every letter he received, every one he wrote. I mean, it's depressing in a way. Uh, but as he shared and he talked about this, I found myself thinking, ouch. And so I thought I'd share the ouch with you at the opening of 2020. How is your doing? How is your doing? And Wesley really embraced this idea that, that you and I, you know, are engaged in this process of our own spirituality. And, and it, it's not only a, it not only becomes inconsistent with our verbal groove, you know, how is your doing throws us off a little, it's an awkward, but it's, it's culturally offsetting. And I don't know about you, but I like to, to really think about the fact that God is in control and I'm supposed to get God to do things. I'm supposed to ask him and pray and be in space. And then I start to understand that biblically speaking, you and I are called into a covenant relationship with God. And that means that God has something to do and that I have something to do. And that together, transformational things happen as I do what I'm supposed to do and God does what he has promised to do. Then together, something very powerful happens and it's called covenant. And this covenant is a responsible place. Now, immediately, if I am to understand that my doing can change my being. My practices can change the reality that my, the fruit of my spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Then a couple of things happen for me. The first one is I feel hopeful. I'm not just the victim of my life. I'm not just the victim of my circumstances. I can have some impact on what's happening around me. I get to choose some things that might have a different outcome. It might grow different fruit in me. So I have options. Whereas I might have once felt helpless, if this is true, that my practices impact my being, then, then I am invited into a place where I have all kinds of options I didn't have before. But then immediately there's a second thing that happens, and that is then I also have responsibility. And while I love the options, I don't care much for the responsibility. I would rather God take care of everything and just inform me about what he's doing and leave me out of it because I am the weakest link. You understand what I'm saying? Any spirituality based on me is going to be not so good. So we're thinking about what this might look like and how our being is directly impacted by our doing. And when we start to think about that, uh, you have to get into a discussion about grace and works. Now, I don't know if you know this, but uh, that was a large part of the Reformation. Maybe you guys remember uh, parts of that. There was a large part of what was going on was this conversation between grace and works. And so, uh, you know, can you earn your salvation? No, you can't. It's by solo subscrua, solo fidel. It's faith alone. It's, it's scripture alone. It's God alone. It's all grace. It's nothing. There is no merit in this process. And we all believe that. There's no merit in the process. We're not earning anything from God. 
but we are being invited into some place in which we participate in this covenant side of the relationship. So, so Jesus was able to say, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise person who builds their house on solid rock. And so these indicators that we get from Scripture and teaching is the idea that you and I are invited into this place. Dallas Willard is uh, one of the great spiritual formation gurus of all times. He passed away recently, a professor at USC, wrote you know, tons of great books about spiritual formation. And by the way, spiritual formation in the life of the church has been the rule of the church until uh, about the beginning of the 19th century. And then when, uh, you know, rationalism and uh, industrialization sort of took over, uh, we became um, Neoplatonists. So uh, time for a little philosophy? We became Neoplatonists. We, we were always sort of as Western thinkers, Platonists, but we took on a new form. And most of us here, if you were raised in a Western culture, uh, you tend to think in these patterns. And the pattern of Neoplatonism is I'm mind, body, soul, and spirit. I'm a divided up thing. And so that lends us into a conversation in which what we're doing today as a group is you've all come to be filled spiritually so that you can go back out and do the other things in your life that you need to do. That's a great you know, pattern of Western thought. It's Sunday. Let's take care of the spiritual component of our lives. Let's go over to the church and be fueled up so that then we can go do the real work of our life and have the strength necessary and the food necessary. This is reflected when I have people say to me, you know, I'm going to go to a different church because I'm not being fed the way I need to be fed. I get that. I mean, sometimes I'll go to McDonald's and Jack in the Box. But our mentality is, I'm coming here to get something so that I can go do things that I need to do. So I'm coming to take care of this aspect of my life. And so as we have divided ourselves up in that way, then we, we, we sort of have lost the connection because we are not components. Plato talked about this because he was trying to convey something about how we cared for all the different perspectives of our life. We took it a little too far. And now we don't really feel like we are fully integrated. So even when I say to you, practices have something to do with our thoughts, we go, what? Is that true? I'm not sure that's right. Because we've disintegrated how we communicate internally. <laughs> oh, I'm thinking now. Oh, these are my feelings. My thoughts and my feelings are two different things. Not exactly. They're all tangled up together. And so we live in this space that kind of divides us up. So we're thinking about what that looks like and what that means. Dallas Willard, uh, and by the way, so spiritual formations then, as we've kind of taken on this new thought, the, ch the, the early church, all the way through really the, the, the 18th century, practiced a lot of these things. It was a part of being a Christian to be in the Word. It was a part of being a Christian to daily pray. It was a part of being a Christian to journal. It was a part of being a Christian to, to, you know, we have great words, you probably don't know, examine, to have mindfulness, to be reflective. Uh, but we've lost that. And now it feels like it's some kind of philosophy that's getting thrust upon us again. And why are people interested in it now? Well, they're, 
are just calling us back into some practices that happened. Dallas Willard, one of the great leaders of that movement uh, within the uh, environment of Christianity, says these things. We are all formed by everything in our lives, our environment, our culture, our jobs, our relationships, and our habits. The question is, which spiritual formation will we choose? We're called to be consciously intentional about our own spiritual growth. The goal of Christian formation is that we become the kind of people who automatically embody Christian virtues and act in Christ-like and virtuous ways. And so he says, basically, listen, you're being formed spiritually by the world. You're being formed spiritually moment by moment, day by day, thought by thought, practice by practice. And that's happening at work, and that's happening everywhere you go. And then the question becomes, then, what intentionally are you doing to be formed in a Christ-like way? What is different? Because all of these pressures will be forming you in some way or the other. For example, um, if you get up every morning and you turn on the news, you are being formed. Uh, your perspective, your attitude, your spirit, your heart, your mind, it's being formed in a way. And so Willard is just asking the question. So as you enter into these practices within the culture, are you, are you intentionally choosing to be formed specifically around the teachings of Christ. This intentionality becomes more and more second nature. We need three things to mature in our Christian faith, he says. Vision, intention, and means. The vision is Christ-likeness. That's given to us biblically. Intention is spoken to by the fact that you're in church. So you have a vision and you have an intentionality or you wouldn't be here. But the third thing is means. Sometimes we lack sufficient means or we need to learn to reconnect the means to the vision and the intention so that we may be formed more powerfully into the image of Christ. So we're thinking about what that looks like and what that means. Everybody doing okay? Feeling good? All right. This is a heavy sermon, so I don't want to hurt you early. So God designed and created us with the capacity to grow, God initiates, he pours out grace on us, he accomplishes this process in our life. And Dallas Willard concludes it this way, if you're having this debate about works of grace. He says, grace is opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. It works by the, by the principle of indirection, he says. If we aim directly at trying to transform our lives, we will set ourselves up for failure. However, if we put our effort into a rhythm of spiritual practices that position us to receive what only God can do in us, and God does the transforming work as we participate in that intentionality. And so that's what this little series is about. It's just about how we might engage. And just so you know, we're not going to just say, uh, here's what we think is important and this is valuable, now go figure it out. Uh, starting next week in your worship folder, uh, you're going to have a little insert, and it's going to say, uh, on Monday, will you spend five minutes doing this? And on Tuesday, will you do this? And, and, and over the seven days of the week, we're going to have the same practice every day for the next seven weeks, although it'll focus differently. Uh, next week, we'll talk about mindfulness, and next week, we'll talk about empathy. Uh, uh, then we'll move into some conversations about forgiveness and some other things. And so each day of the week, you'll be the same practice around a different topic. And this is what will happen. By the end of this series, you will have spent seven weeks in the practices. We're told it takes 42 weeks, 42 days, to establish a new habit. So you'll have 49. There's seven extras in there. And... 
What we hope to do is, in a very practical and simple way, invite you into the practices. In the middle of this series, starting January 19th, uh, John and Chung Shem Lapnow are also going to teach a class about getting deeper in our connection. So you want to go a little deeper than just this casual connection, and there's a four-week class, an uh, hour and a half each week, and you get to sit down with them. And John and Chung Shem are therapists. So this is interesting. You do know that in this positive psychological movement, that what we're being told is that if you want to change the way your brain works and you want to change the way your emotions work, you have to change your practices. So, so that, you know, here we're talking about it in a spiritual sense. But if you go to a counselor and you go, I need to change the way I think, they're going to say, okay, well, here's what the science is telling us. You have to change your practices because your practices are fully integrated into how you think. And if you don't change your practices, you can't change the way you think. Now, where psychology sort of leaves the trail is that, you know, there's a certain sense in which there's a humanistic approach. You have everything in you you need, so change your practices and you can be a different person. We don't really espouse that, do we? We would rather say it this way. I'm simply putting myself in space where I can hear God speak and do his work in me. He is the one that will transform me. He is the one that changes the way I think. He's the one that allows me the, the invitation into the power of his Holy Spirit and his grace. I'm just making myself available. The practices in which I'm engaging aren't coming out of me. They're quieting me and moving me out of the way so God can do his work. And I don't know about you, but I need God to show up in very powerful ways. I love that story of Elijah. You know, the fire, the wind, the earthquake. This is where I need God to show up. You know, shake me, hey! But he consistently shows up in the still small voice. And so I find myself really in that stage of being able to go, well, I, I would guess that God is speaking to me all kinds of things, but I am unable to hear because my practices are such that I have no attentiveness or ability to receive that. And so the... The practices are simply saying, I'm going to intentionally change my practices so that I can hear better and receive better what God intends for me and my journey. Are you longing for change? Is there a part of you that says, there's some things about myself that I would like to see different things about my life, my journey, my relationship with others? Because see, God teaches us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That these things grow out of a life of depth. That this is the context and the content of our life and our heart. And then he says, I want you to love God with all your heart. And I want you to love uh, your neighbor as yourself. But when I think about circumstances and I think about what's happening, it seems to me that a lot of what goes on in our life is we spend a lot of conflict and energy because we have a hard time having this vertical relationship. So therefore, we have a lot of difficulty in these horizontal relationships. And sometimes it's friendships, and sometimes it's marriages, and sometimes it's with our children. But there's a lot of tension, and there's a lot of things going on. And we're invited into this place where we become these fully integrated human beings, and God begins to speak his life into us. And we long for that. We long for change. We long for wholeness. What are you longing for as this new year begins? What would you change about yourself if you could? What would you change about your relationships or about the way life works or about the way you think what would you invite the holy spirit to do in this journey 
and in this life. This isn't a new journey. It's been going on for a long time. I came across an article doing research uh, for this series by Bretton K. McKay, and I tell you this because if you ever come across it, uh, I stole um, quotes that they had gathered. I didn't really like the article all that much, but, <laughs> but I did find they did a great job gathering. So if you ever open the article and you go, hey, Pastor Dave did a sermon and he did these exact same quotes. I'm just being honest with you. I stole them in this order. But living a just and holy life requires one to be capable of an, inject, of an objective and impartial evaluation of things. To love things, that is to say, in the right order, so that you do not love what is not to be loved, or fail to love what is to be loved, or have a greater love for what should be loved less, or an equal love for things that should be loved less or more, or a lesser or a greater love for the things that should be loved equally. St. Augustine. Just articulating the dilemma. If, if I'm going to try to help myself, I, I, I don't even know what should I love, what should I not love, how, how, do I be, how do I emerge from my subjectivity? How do I become objective about analyzing my own life? I need to put myself in space in which God can speak. The meaning of earthly existence is not as we have grown used to thinking in prosperity, but in the development of the soul. Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Do you have less respect for your own nature than the engraver does for the engraving? The dancer for the dance, the miser for money, or the social climber for status? When they're really possessed by what they do, they'd rather stop eating and sleeping than give up their practicing their arts. Marcus Aurelius. In other words, there are people who are deeply committed to practice. Are we? Are we passionate about our practices? Ask me not where I live and what I like to eat. Ask me what I am living for and what I think is keeping me from living fully for that. Thomas Merton. Richard Foster wrote a book in 1978 entitled The Celebration of Discipline. Uh, it was a major movement in the culture uh, of Christianity back towards the disciplines. And he writes this in the book. The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. Perhaps somewhere in the subterranean chambers of your life, you've heard the call to deeper, fuller living. You've become weary of frothy experiences and shallow teaching. Every now and then you've caught glimpses, hints of something more than you have known. Inwardly, you long to launch out into the deep. The disciplines allow us to place ourselves before God so that he can transform us. The inner righteousness we seek is not something that's poured on our heads. God has ordained the disciplines of the spiritual life as the means by which we place ourselves where he can bless us. In this regard, it would be proper to speak of the path of disciplined grace. It is grace because it is free. It is disciplined because there is something for us to do. It's powerful, powerful words. We could probably dismiss this whole conversation except that it's biblical. And one of the most powerful representations of this conversation and argument is contained in Romans chapter 12. Now, when Paul constructs his letters, he gives us a theological construct and then he gives us an ethical application. And so he consistently does this in all of his letters. And so the first part of Paul's letters are he's, in, he's telling you the theological story. He's giving you the why. And he's very good about relating this into the very roots of the Judeo-Christian tradition. So he'll... He'll relate it in the early part of his letters into, you know, 
Adam and Eve and Abraham and the narrative and the Davidic kingdom. And, and he's very good about creating strong theological constructs. Here's all the things we have been taught and believed over all of the centuries of development. And then he'll come to this point and he'll say, therefore. Now, based on all of that, this is what we're supposed to do next. And that happens in the book of Romans at chapter 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to him, which is your reasonable act of spiritual worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what God's will is, his good and perfect and pleasing will. And so just quickly as we bring this sermon to a conclusion to think about what is Paul saying in the Romans. So this whole series is going to be taken from Romans 12 through 15, the ethical application of all that Romans has talked about. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. So here's just a few things that I believe are elements that he brings out that have to do with the foundation of depth. Element number one, it takes place in a context of mercy. Brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. It's very important that as we talk about spiritual practice, we set that in a setting of mercy. Because a couple of things happen when we engage ourselves in some active participation. The first one is guilt and inadequacy. I don't know about you, but when I engage in the spiritual practices, I, I don't feel very good at it. Um, I grew up in a culture uh, in the 70s, Jesus culture. Anybody else grew up in the 70s, Jesus culture? No, not too many. Okay. Most of us are dead now. I'm assuming that some of you grew up in the 60s, so that's why you're not raising your hands, because you're not looking that young from up here. But in the 70s, we had the Jesus movement, and in the Jesus movement, it was, you know, uh, we were taught about, we really had a big emphasis on the practices. So as a teenager, I was exposed to this constantly. You know, okay, everything I went to, you know, here's a journal. We want you to journal. Okay. I can't even write my name, but okay. And, you know, I can't tell you how many speakers at camps I heard say, and if you're not getting up early in the morning and praying first thing in the morning, it's the first thing in the morning. You've got to pray first thing in the morning. It's the first thing in the morning. And I've been to so many camps, you know, on Thursday night, you know, commitment time and they tell the story about the kid that left camp and got run over by a train, and you got to recommit right now. <laughs> Amen? I mean, you, some of you went, you lived this experience. I mean, I'm not making this up, you know. This is your last chance. <laughs> and I'd go to the altar, and I'm going to do it this time, God, I promise. I'm going to get up at 5 a.m. and read my Bible and journal. I promise. I know I didn't do it last year, but I will this year. It lasts about three days, you know. And so immediately when we talk about spiritual disciplines, we, we, we enter into this place of guilt. And it's another legalistic thing that we have to do. Listen, this must be said in a context of God's mercy. It is not about any of that. This is about an invitation to come into a quiet place in which God might meet you in a powerful way. It's just about saying, I'm going to be quiet. On the other hand, there's another whole group of personalities in the room and joining us and that group of personalities is a group of people that will just say you know what I, I am crushing this spiritual disciplines thing I'm killing it look at my journal 
I mean, I've got icons and symbols, and I'm illustrating now. Look, I'm illustrating, and I'm just killing it. I'm killing it. (laughs) There really isn't a lot of room for conceit in the process of spiritual discipline. Amen? So we all need mercy. We don't ever get to be proficient in the practices of spirituality so that we become prideful about our practices of spirituality. That's not what this is. So we don't fall off on the side of guilt, and we don't fall off on the side of good. Spiritual practices must be in a context of mercy. Number two, there is personal, physical sacrifice involved. In view of God's mercy, present your bodies as living sacrifices. That we have compartmentalized and believe that somehow our physical activity has nothing to do with our inner spiritual sense is just not true. It's just not true. That you present your bodies as living sacrifices. That you physically engage in things that are a part of spiritual practice and development, that you physically create space in which God can do work in us. It's an invitation. And I don't think I'm misinterpreting. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to him. Which brings us to the third point. It happens within a context where worship has a literal content. Present your bodies as living sacrifices, which is your reasonable act of spiritual worship. It's that Neoplatonist thought that that the only thing that worships is my spirit. No. We worship in spirit and in truth. There is a literal application of what worship looks like. In the next few weeks, we're going to have Sunday. The Sunday practice will revolve around worship, which seems natural. And all we'll be inviting you to do is to the celebration, to be mindful of the celebration that is worship, that is the reason we come together. Because I don't know about you, but it seems to me that I can run into this place on a Sunday having done no preparation for what is supposed to happen in this context together. And so he just is literally saying, listen, our worship involves very literal participation. This is a spectator setup. You know that, right? In mass communication, we call this a, a socio-fugal arrangement in the room. Um, so that means you're all sitting in rows, facing forward, and I am elevated above you. <laughs> this gives me authority over you. I don't know if you know, but in the higher church, there is a little side place over here where you climb up to the preaching point, which is way over here. So I can look down on all of you from a greater height. Also, just so you know, theologically, the larger the pulpit in a sermon, I mean in a, in a church setting, the higher the church authority. So now that we have no pulpit, we just kind of move this thing around. <laughs> We're trying to bring everybody together, you know. But we could change the dynamic of this participation if we sat in a circle. That would be called a sociopedal arrangement in which... And then if I just sat down as a part of the group, which is what's going to happen now on Sunday nights at our fireside chat, you know, it's a little bit more interactive. But what a shame that we've lost the reality that this is not about me talking to you or worship leaders leading you. This is a participation of the body of Christ who have come together in a literal act of worship that involves our physicality as much as our spirits. And that matters. This happens in a context where the worship is literal, and he relates those things together. Number four, it, it, it involves an expectation 
of breaking with the norm. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. And so the question that I would be is, what distinctly Christian practices do you participate in on a regular basis? What distinctly Christian thing do you do because you are seeking after the teachings of Christ, Christ-likeness, the fruits of the Spirit? This is to be a place where you say, insanity is doing the same things and expecting different results. And so how would we change our practices? Something that is distinctly Christian, that is distinctly biblically called, being in the word, being prayerful, being reflective, fasting, journaling. What are those disciplines in which we might engage that are distinctly breaking from the norm? Number five, the foundation of depth is established as the mind is transformed. So do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know, uh, I don't know about you, but it seems to be that I would like to think better. As I get older, I find that I, I can't pull names. Has anybody else having that problem? I mean, I never could call my children by their appropriate name, ever. <laughs> yeah, but I, but I find now there are people that I know really well. I mean, I know them really well. And I'll be talking about them, and I go, I, I just can't think of their name right now. You know? Thank you. But I also find that my brain works in patterns, you know, that, that, that something can happen. And I find that, you know, it's, it's like the music starts, and then I dance. Does that happen to anybody else? Like, like a bad thing can happen, and then my brain just goes, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. It just goes off on its own because it heard the music. It heard, it heard some music, and there it went. <laughs> Whoa, where are these thoughts coming from? And so Paul is suggesting that we might be transformed by the renewing of our mind, that these practices, this presenting of our bodies, living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is our reasonable act of spiritual worship. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Present your bodies, your physical bodies, as living sacrifices, which is your spiritual worship. He's tying these two, he's fighting that platonic idea. <laughs> Put yourself back together. What you do physically has something to do with what you're feeling and what you're thinking. Change practice, change thinking. By the way, just so you know, that's really good psychological truth too. That what we're discovering in the moral psychology movement is that psychologists are saying, listen, if you want to think differently, you're going to have to act differently. What Paul knew a long time ago and Jesus taught us was just truth about being a human being that we're only now beginning to, to formulate the science to accommodate. And finally, the last one is this. Foundation of depth is established with a growing capacity for truth. Then you may prove what God's will is, his good and perfect and pleasing will. Then you can understand. <laughs> then you can have insight into what's really true. It's true because it works, and it's true because it's true. And it's true because it's practical, and it's true because it's liberating, and it's true because it's redemptive. And I don't know about you, but my brain doesn't naturally flow into places like that. My brain goes into a darker place, into a lesser place, and I want that to be different. So we're standing here on the verge of introducing to you this series, and for the next seven weeks now, we are going to engage together in some very specific practices. We're going to talk about a different practice. Next week, we're going to talk about mindfulness and how important creating space where you can simply have space to be reflective. It's vital, 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 
vital. And then we'll invite you to practice that for seven days in different ways. The next week, we'll talk about empathy. How important is it that you can feel the feelings of the people around you, that you can put yourself in the shoes of another? Listen, if we're going to be fully integrated human beings, if we're going to learn to love God with all our heart and love each other, we're going to have to engage in practices that teach us these deep, deep truths. So we're inviting you into the journey. In a moment, our prayer team will come, and they'll station themselves. Maybe as I've talked, God's tapping you on the shoulder. It's that time of year. It's January 6th. It's a new year. If you need to pray, if you want to make some covenant commitments, if you're just saying, I want to be willing, if you feel resistant, maybe you just explore that. God, why do I feel resistant? Why, why don't I feel excited that maybe you're inviting me to a new way of living and a new way of being? So my prayer for you is that you would think this thought as you go from this place. How is your doing? God, would you help us? As we close out this service and we invite you to come and lead us, and we ask you to speak specifically into our hearts, we're going to sing, we're going to respond to your word, we'll celebrate a benediction together, and, and around the room our prayer team is stationed, and if people need to pray, we just want to make sure that everybody has a chance to do work as your Holy Spirit speaks in this place. We're thankful. We're thankful that you invited us into covenant, that you didn't simply ask us to sit and wait, that you invited us to commune with you. You invited us to reflect and to open our hearts. You taught us to pray. You demonstrated fasting. You, you called us into places in which we allowed our lives to become fully integrated, body and soul and spirit and mind and heart. So we humbly begin this journey together as a congregation. Bless each of the components. The daily practices we'll introduce next week. The class with John and Shang Shim. Opportunities. Humble efforts to simply invite you to do deeper work in us. And so we give you thanks. And we offer to you our responses. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. And everybody said together. Will you stand as we respond to the word? Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.